me and my buddies went in and uh, took out the anti-aircraft guns so that the B-111s wouldn't get shot out of the sky. And I said, how'd you do that? He goes, well, about four of us would go to where the gun site was and we'd kill everybody and then blow it up. I'm like, that's cool. You've got some living yet to do. Welcome to the Man Talks Podcast. I am Connor Beaton. My host, Roger Nairn, is on a top secret mission, which I can't talk about right now. But what I can talk to you about is our guest, Mr. Clint Emerson, who is a retired Navy SEAL and the author of 100 Deadly Skills, uh, which is the SEAL's operative guide to eluding pursuers, evading capture, and surviving any dangerous situation. Let me tell you, this interview is incredible. Uh, Clint goes into some of his training as a Navy SEAL and the initiation and some of the things that he had to go through in order to become a Navy SEAL, not to mention you know, some insights into uh, some of his actual missions, which is pretty incredible. Clint also goes into some of the key things that we need to know uh, in terms of survival. Everything from creating your own compass to creating weapons out of everyday products like newspapers, which I was surprised by. I'll never look at a newspaper the same. To surveillance and being able to point out and spot a bad guy. So just a little bit about Clint. Clint Emerson is a retired Navy SEAL, spent 20 years conducting special ops all over the world while attached to SEAL teams including the Elite SEAL Team 6, which is incredible. Uh, He was also a part of the NSA, the National Security Agency. No big deal. Utilizing an array of practical skills he developed to protect himself while at home and abroad, he created what's called the Violent Nomad, a personal non-kinetic capture and kill program cataloging the skills necessary to defend against any predator or crisis. His zero-trace line of security and survival products are currently rolling out nationwide. So without further ado, I hope that you enjoy. You're in for one hell of a ride and some epic stories. Clint Emerson. All right. Well, Clint, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the Man Talks podcast. I'm super excited. I actually I reached out uh, to Roger, my co-host, and um, I was like, man, we got to have this guy on the podcast. I think our listeners would love this. I would love this. It was totally, uh, it, it was totally from a from a selfish space. I just wanted to have you on here and, and talk about this, talk about this book. So I wanted to start off with um, kind of a, a cool question because I'm more curious than anything else. But can you tell us about um, you know maybe one of the most intense stories that you have from your career as a Navy SEAL? And and I I get that some of that is probably classified, so maybe it's a training story. But yeah, can you can you give us some insight into something? And I'm not one of the guys that you know writes books about operations, secrets, or my dead buddies like uh, a lot of team guys out there. So I tend to navigate away, but I will give you, uh, there is one thing that happened. I was overseas during the Arab Spring, and uh, I was driving back from the embassy one day, and I took a, took a right-hand turn, normal route that I typically take, or at least one of the normal routes that I would take. And uh, there right in front of me was uh, probably about three, 4,000 emotionally charged, angry mobs. So before I knew it, the car was swarmed and literally it's rocking back and forth. You know, the wheels coming up on both sides, people trying to break into the car. And uh, after all the things that I had done 
combat related, I thought to myself, you got to be kidding me. I'm about to get ripped apart by a bunch of angry protesters. You know, that was just a, a very volatile time in the Middle East. So, um, you know, and I, a lot of lessons learned from that. I, uh, I hadn't charged the minutes on my SIM card in a couple of days. I didn't have uh, very much gas. Um, so all the things that I typically stay on top of at that wrong place, wrong time, completely ill prepared, I found myself, uh, surrounded. So, um, there were three or four of the nation's military mixed into this group and they, uh, I saw one of them and he had sympathetic eyes. He was just looking at me in a way that made me feel like, man, I think this guy might be on my side. And so I couldn't start running over people like most people would assume or else you'd high axle the vehicle, you know, something straight out of Walking Dead. Right. So uh, instead, I took another chance and he had an AK-47. He's wearing a uniform. So I figure I gave him the international sign for money. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was, it was all I had. So I let him uh, I let him get into the passenger seat. And he uh, closed the door. I locked the locks. And then uh, I told him, go ahead. Let's let's go. And so he took his AK-47 and he pointed it up to the windshield. And a sea of people parted and we drove through. But um, that, that AK-47 could very easily have been pointed at me. But uh, it was one of those uh, moments where, you know, there aren't too many options when you have thousands of people around you. You sure as hell aren't going to get out. But the sympathetic eyes and some money, uh, we got through the crowd and uh, the first gas station. I uh, stopped, gave him his money, he jumped in the can, uh, a taxi, and left. And that was that. But it was uh, for that moment in time, it was probably one of the more intense uh, events where you just don't have much control. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that is to hear, you know things blowing up and jumping out of planes and all that, but uh, I saved that stuff for the other guys to tell. <laughs> no, man, I think uh, I think that that's that's pretty fantastic. I mean, I think those real life, you know, those real life scenarios where you have to think quick and be on, you know, kind of not be on your feet, but you you need to you need to find an innovative solution, right? And I think that that just shows the the quick thinking of like, okay, how do I get out of this? So maybe. Um, you know, I'm very curious, like what made you want to join the Navy SEALs in the, in the first place? Well, I, I grew up overseas. So I, um, I was in Saudi from second grade to high school. And, uh, on one of our trips, um, back to the States, uh, we stopped through Germany and we were at the Frankfurt airport and I went to get like a soft drink or something at the bar. I was probably 10 years old. And, uh, there was a guy standing there, um, he had a uh, like a black collared shirt on. You could see half of a tattoo sitting off of his bicep. So me being a curious kid, I'm like, hey, what is that? He's like, it's a tattoo. I'm like, well, I know that. What is it a tattoo of? And he's uh, a trident. And I'm like, what's a trident? He's like, it's, it's a symbol for seals. I'm like, what's a seal? <laughs> so I had to dig it out of this guy. <laughs> and eventually he uh, he kind of tells me, he goes, where, where are you from, kid? And I'm like, I, I live in Saudi, you know, and uh, my dad works for Ramco, blah, 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 blah. And uh, so he uh, he goes on time. He goes, well, you know when we bombed Libya? I'm like, yeah, I was there. Uh, he goes, yeah. So the B-111s had to come in really low. Um, me and my buddies went in and uh, took out the anti-aircraft guns so that the B-111s wouldn't get shot out of the sky. 
And I said, how'd you do that? He goes, well, about four of us would go to where the gun site was and we'd kill everybody and then blow it up. I'm like, that's cool. <laughs> uh, so at that moment in time, I was like, that's kind of neat. Uh, you know, I was into ninjas and whatever else at that age. So of course, you know, that was about the, the realist, uh, thing I'd heard, realistic thing I'd heard that was, uh, to a ninja. So I figure, well, okay. I kept that in my mind and then I immediately started reading about it. And back then, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't the internet or you know, there was just maybe one book at the library I could find on seals. And, uh, from then I was sold. Crazy, crazy. And I mean, you know, I think the public media hears a lot about, um, the training and how intense it is. And, um, you know, that you have to go through all these crazy challenges and tests and, you know, endurance and whatnot. Is it, is it all true? <laughs> uh, it is. Yeah. The, the, uh, the training without a doubt is, um, six months of, uh, just weed out. I mean, you learn some stuff, but the reality is it's six months to, for the instructor cadre to decide, um, who's really willing to take it, you know, to the end. And who's not going to quit? Who's got the mental and physical fortitude to um, push through six months, which at, at the end of the day doesn't even come close to what you experience and go through when it's time to you know get involved in some kind of direct action, ambush, any combat related stuff. You find out real quickly that wow, you know that six months was nothing compared to some of this, and uh, and uh, yeah, I mean you're you're being tested weekly. Um, uh, on a myriad of things. You have an obstacle course that you're tested on weekly. You have a four-mile run that you're tested on weekly. You have a two-mile ocean swim that you're tested on weekly. Um, and then you have all of these other tasks in between. Um, and just, just in meals alone, most people don't get it. Like, uh, you're running six miles a day just to eat. Uh, now, that's not including your timed runs and everything else that's going on. It's it's pretty incredible, and you're doing that, you know, just to eat. It's a mile to get to eat and a mile back. Wow. You're doing that at least three times a day. And then, of course, you have to have the energy to basically put up with everything else. But the biggest piece is you're wet and you're cold uh, the majority of the time. And that's what makes a class like mine go from 180 guys down to 28 when it's time to graduate. And and is the is the SEALs division handpicked or do you apply for it? Like is it something where you're approached or how does that work? No, you you basically volunteer. I mean, you you, you have to join the big one is you have to take the leap of faith and join the Navy. And then once you're in the Navy, then you, you know, you say, "Hey, I want to be a SEAL." And then they say, "Okay, they give you this little physical test." And then they look at your what you scored on the ASVAB, which is kind of like the SAT for getting into the military, right? Okay. And um, if you score high enough in certain areas, plus um, a very simple physical test, well, then you get to go to BUDS, which is basic underwater demolition seal training. Hmm. And when you show up there, then it's just game on. Very cool. I, it's It's interesting. I mean, it's kind of fascinating the amount of um, tasks and tests and challenges that you had to go through just to reach this end goal. And I can imagine that that's really set you up for success for everything else that you want to do now that you're not a part of the Navy SEALs. I think one of the, you know, one of the biggest challenges that most millennials face is that they, they think that shit should just happen, um, just sort of, you know, in a three month span. 
And here you are, you're like, okay, I had to go through, you know, this six month, you know, kind of hell in order to get into this, not, not to mention the, the sort of pre-work up to that, um, through buds and, and whatnot. So kudos to you. And, and you know, what, uh, just out of curiosity, like what, what sort of like values and virtues do you think you, you really gained out of that experience that maybe people could, could learn from? Well, I mean, training is one piece and that's just the beginning, but you know, 20 years later, you know, I did the full 20 and retired and, um, yeah, there's so much you, you kind of, there's so many takeaways, uh, that the big one that I, I always share with my, my daughter is that life's a competition, right? Mm. And, uh, you should always be striving to win and you should look at it that way. And, uh, that's kind of, you know, from the day you walk in to that community to the day you walk out, that's the one thing is that you, that internal competition with yourself, the competition that you have with your peers, um, and then the competition that we have as a unit against all the other units. And then you go bigger and bigger and bigger. And before you know it, you realize that uh, you can be as good as you want to be at pretty much anything in life. And nothing should prevent you from striving for every little piece of this life that you think you deserve because it's all attainable. It's just a matter of getting in the, that mindset that, okay, I'm going to win and I'm going to win it every day. And it goes back to one of the most common sayings that we have. We wear a trident on our chest. And one of the things we, one of many mantras is uh, you have to earn your trident every day. It's not something you just get and then you're good to go. You literally have to earn it every day. So, um, yeah, there's, I could, I could probably write a whole book on that alone. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. I mean, I, I hope you do, cause that's something that I would, I would definitely read as well. And I, I think our listeners would as well. Um, you know, it's interesting, like we had, we had Stephen Mansfield on the other day. Uh, he wrote this, this book recently called the, the book of manly men. And, um, he was talking about this, this idea of building your brotherhood and, you know, it's, we kind of chatted about how, how important brotherhood actually is and how important it is to, to sort of have, um, you know, your band of brothers, which is a very uh, army based thing. But I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, before you joined the army and then after, or sorry, before you joined the navies, the navy seals, um, you know, did you, did you really feel like you had that band of brothers, like that close knit group of, group of guys that you could go talk to and just shoot the shit with and, and move through anything. And then what was it like once you did join the Navy? Like, is it, what did you really get to build that sense of camaraderie? Yeah. I mean, growing up, I've, um, I've been fortunate enough to have good friends, you know, as I mentioned before, when I was, you know, second grade, you know, your younger elementary years, I was overseas and I had, you know, a couple of friends that I'm still friends with today. And then when I got to back to the States for uh, high school and college, um, you know, I have another good group of friends here in Texas that, you know, I have now come back to, um, literally moving blocks away from the guys I used to live around when I was in high school. Now we've got all our kids hanging out. Um, but it's different, right? I mean, that's one kind of, uh, bond that you form. And then when you go into the military and you experience combat with guys, now that's, that's, that's above and beyond, you know, if, whether it's something as simple as jumping out of a plane together or, you know, being ambushed together, those are the bonds that, you know, you can't replicate that, you know, in a civilian, you know, lifestyle, it just, just isn't doable. Um, but 
it uh, it certainly fortifies uh, your friendships, your willingness to sacrifice, you know, you name it for one another. Um, and it, uh, it makes, uh, it creates this whole family that, um, you just, you can't get to anywhere. I would say that I am closer with those guys than I could ever be with any family member, um, probably besides my daughter, but my brother, my mom, my dad, I mean, I'm closer with those guys than anybody else on this planet. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. That's, that's pretty freaking cool. Um, Let's jump into the book because I know, um, you know, I told a couple of friends and then uh, we kind of gave a sneak peek to a couple of the uh, the fans of ours that we were going to be doing this. And there was some serious buzz around, you know, the the 100 Deadly Skills. Um, so I, I'm super excited to jump into the book. So the, the book is 100 Deadly Skills, uh, the SEAL Operative Guide to Eluding Pursuers, Evading Capture, and Surviving Any Dangerous Situation. How fucking rad is that? Um, <laughs> so you've, you've broken the book down into four parts. And um, I'm wondering if you can just walk us through. So you have mission prep infiltration, infrastructure development, and surveillance. Um, you know, how did you, is that kind of like the basic training that you kind of go through or why did you come on that structure? Um, well, the book is uh, basically phased into what is a hypothetical full mission profile. Um, so I wanted it to basically, I wanted to tie all the skills together into what might appear to be you know, some kind of training for the reader. So, you know, every 10 skills is basically represents a phase of training that a, what I call a violent nomad would go through. And, um, you know, hidden within all that really is skills that uh, every person can walk away with and hopefully use if crisis comes knocking on their door. And that's really, that's really the goal of that book was to give people some real life skills based on today's threats that they could leverage. And, uh, believe it or not, most of the skills are, uh, are developed by either bad guys, magicians, or, you know, and then some of them are, you know, the special operations community. So you kind of want to consolidate it all. And at a minimum, if somebody reads it and goes, well, I hope I never have to use these, that's perfect. But the bigger takeaway is now they have that knowledge, which gives them awareness so that if a predator comes walking around the corner um, with a certain, you know, um, certain clues or cues, hopefully because you read the book, you go, that's a bad guy. Because mm. that's really um, all the all the skills in the book represent a predator to a certain degree. Cool. So you kind of start off the book by diving into the anatomy of a violent nomad, and then you talk about the everyday carry kit. Um, what what does that what does that look like, and why is that important? Yeah, uh, everyday carry, you know, has become really popular. I mean, on Instagram, they've got probably you know, there's there's dozens of people that have everyday carry as part of their uh, their uh, username, and you know, so and it's just a palm full of gear, you know, or it can be a vehicle full of gear. It really depends in, in how you define it. But I, the way I put it is, hey, it should be some items that are always on you uh, that can assist you uh, if you find yourself in trouble. So, you know, here in the States, you know, we, uh, we've got guns. Everybody's got a gun, right? Especially here in Texas. <laughs> we love our guns. So, you know, you should, if you can carry it legally, then you should. 
Um, but then there's the, the other things that are more particular to me, you know, um, I like, I like carrying a mouthpiece. I've learned my lesson, you know, you get into fights, uh, uh, and I've got dead teeth. I've had my teeth punched through my bottom lip. You know, you, you run into all these issues over the years. And one thing I found that detours fights the most was telling them, Hey, hold on a second. And then putting in my mouthpiece and then they look at you like, you're not all here, are you? <laughs> or, or like you're really ready to fucking tango. Like, yes. <laughs> like you, you brought your own yeah. mouthpiece. You're not, you're not there to screw around and you know what you're doing. Like, <laughs> exactly. And it's like, well, heck, that, I mean, I, I throw it in and people go, you know what? I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm good, buddy. You just, I'm sorry. I, uh, sorry. I, I started some shit with you, but whatever it was, uh, it's entertaining to say the least, but, you know, I throw, that's a little bit of me I'm throwing into the book. And then other things are based on escape and that, you know, Harry Houdini came up with in 1921, which is a razor blade and a handcuff key. You can put a razor blade in the sole of every single pair of shoes you have and you can buy, you know, uh, handcuff keys on the internet for, you know, 50 cents. And so sprinkle those about your attire and have them everywhere so that if you find yourself apprehended by a bad guy or restrained, you know whether your hands are tied in front or tied behind you, you can still squat down and get to your shoes, pull out a razor blade and cut yourself free or grab a handcuff key and undo the handcuffs and get yourself free. So these are things that they don't take any effort. You might as well. There's no reason not to do it um, if it gives you the confidence in the upper hand if uh, a bad guy um, you know, takes advantage of you in any way. Hmm. Interesting. And, yeah. you know, for the, you kind of mentioned, you, you kind of touched on it before, um, identifying, uh, the violent Novad, like uh, identifying like these bad guys, like what are some of the key things that you would look for or the key identifiers, um, that you would look for in terms of body language or, you know, what does that look like? You know, I think it's um, part of it has looks. And there's definitely clues and cues. Um, another part of it is your gut. Gut instinct goes a long ways. You know, you look at somebody, you shake somebody's hand. We all get that 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 vibe. Like, you know, what? there's something up with this dude. Um, so I think you know, both having the knowledge up here to be able to interpret certain clues along with your gut instinct go a long ways. And but if you talk specifically about you know someone who is carrying a concealed weapon, for example, there's, you know, there's a couple of indicators. One is uh, embossing. Embossing is, you know, what, for example, is when the wind blows against, let's say his shirt is untucked and the wind blows against him, you're going to see the natural outline of a gun and looking for that. Um, there's telegraphing. Somebody who's carrying a gun tends to always check and make sure that it's in the right place or they adjust the area around that weapon because they're uncomfortable at that point in time. Then there's the nat, you know, more environmental stuff that will identify it. So if it's a hot day, you'll literally, people will sweat around the weapon and the weapon will be, you know, highlighted on either their pants or their shirt. Um, if it's raining out, you know, um, because the weapon bulges, the rain's going to catch there, um, you know, and clothing then becomes semi-transparent. So it can be identified then. And then there's just straight up negligence, right? People that go to the ATM to get cash, they pull out their wallet from behind and they accidentally show either the weapon or the magazines for that weapon that they're carrying. 
Um, and then, of course, their gait, right, the way they walk. Um, one of the big things that gave the guy away on the train over there in Europe was uh, he walked on and he looked like he was weighted down. There was an American professor that identified him as that guy doesn't look right um, and told his wife. And then he, he, the guy went into the into the restroom, was in there for an extraordinary amount of time. The professor then told his wife, OK, there is something going on here. And sure enough, he comes out and starts, uh, you know, his weapons reveal. Um, you know, if it wasn't for his awareness on just the, the way the guy walked and what he was telegraphing because of body language, uh, things on that train may have gone a completely different way. Wow. Um, I mean, you talked about telegraphing, which is kind of cool because that's actually, um, I remember, and I've never pickpocketed, but I remember watching a show on pickpocketing and they said that that's actually what people look for is when you check uh, when people are checking, because they'll often be walking along and they'll check for the keys, check for the wallet, check for their cell phone. And pickpocketers will actually watch large crowds and they'll look for um, people checking their pockets to see like where their wallet is and where their phone is to make sure that they're still there. And so they, they actually recommend that when you're when you're in you know foreign countries that you know have high rates of pickpocketing to you know a put it on the inside pocket but also b um to not to not telegraph to not actually like pat yourself down and make sure that you have them because it's uh it's just like a giveaway for for pickpocketers so that's kind of cool that that's something that you look for as well yeah yeah that's awesome it's a good correlation in infiltration what are some of the keys to infiltration um you, you talked about the you know crossing the enemy border by sea crossing the enemy border by air land um tell us a little bit about that yeah, some of that was just really to kind of tie the violent nomads' capabilities to the rest of the theme of the book, which is this lone killer, Jason Bourne-like guy that is, you know, traveling the globe, a MacGyver of sorts, you know, because he leverages his environment and he's always improvising in order to get the job done. And uh, so you know, showing how he could, uh, you know, <laughs> skydive out of an aircraft to get behind enemy lines or swim up on a beach really is the only aspect of the book that kind of adds a seal twist to it. And, uh, and, but it also shows some skills that, you know, that aren't too far from what bad guys are doing these days. Crossing borders um, through remote areas is nothing new. And even coming up, leveraging, you know, uh, it's very it's very difficult to secure a beach and keep it secure. So bad guys, especially in the in the drug trafficking world, um, leverage beaches all the time because you just can't watch the entire coastline. It's very difficult. And then you add the element of darkness to it. And it's, uh, it's compounded. So it really was to kind of shed some light on the creativity of which uh, someone would get into a country and then set the rest of the skills up after that. And in the in that section, you talk about um, you know scaling high walls and stuff like that. Did you guys learn parkour, or is there some you know like trade secrets that you can share with us? <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. We actually did pay for some parkour stuff training wise. We had actually tried to get I forgot what's the guy the original the guy originated out of France. Oh um, man. Um I know who's but James Bond movies uh here in the recent the re more recent James Bond movies. He's like the uh one of the technical advisors. But we'd reached out to him. We ended up getting local training here in the States. But you know, parkour I think is a uh a great means of uh you 
know, it's, it's an, it's an option. You're going to either fight or parkour. You know, it's easy to say fight or run, but I would bump it up a notch and say, Hey, you know, learn how to fight and learn parkour. And that allows, that gives you the greatest skill as far as, you know, getting away from a threat that I could think of, you know? Yeah. Very cool. In terms of the infrastructure development on the, on the third phase, you have some pretty cool, you know, like steal a vehicle, conceal belongings within lodging, um, prevent hotel room invasions. So there's, there's some pretty, uh, neat tips in there for the everyday person. What do you think, uh, are, is really valuable from the infrastructure development aspect of the book? Oh, geez, it's a bunch. I mean, knowing how the way I see it is, if you know how the predator operates, you're, you're, you're taking his skills, you're taking his capability away from him. So, you know, car theft these days has become very, very difficult. But if you have later model vehicles, it still exists, especially like, you know, your older model Hondas, which I use as the example in the book. Um, you know, if you got an, anywhere in the 90s model Honda, you know, it's it, they're, they're very easily stolen. But if you know how they do it, then you essentially can take certain precautions to prevent it. And that's the goal of showing kind of the offensive side to things so that you can then have a better defense. You know, hotel room safety and security. I mean, that's a big one Um, as people travel and as you have, you know, terrorist events that take place at Western hotels. You know, there's a lot to be gained from that. And then on the foreign intelligence side, knowing really how to conceal your valuables when traveling abroad is is important, especially data. You know, competitive intelligence has become, you know, some of these countries like number one gold. It's easier to steal trade secrets than it is to invent something new. And, uh, you know, and they want to take it to market. They want to be a superpower. They want whatever it is they want, but they want economic gain out of it. So they're looking to, you know smart Westerners or anybody from smart people from any country really and take their information and then leverage it in some form or fashion. So, you know, I talk about, Hey, do not leave your laptop behind in a hotel. Do not leave your phone. Don't leave an iPad. Don't leave anything because there's what's known as evil made attacks. And this is where host nation governments will actually task the cleaning services in these hotels, even though it says Marriott across the top, or Hilton, American brand, does not mean that it's actually owned by Marriott. It means that it was licensed. And most of them are actually owned by, uh, you know, other foreign entities. And so just because you're staying there in a Western hotel doesn't necessarily mean it's safe. And anyway, so you know, these the, the host nation will leverage those cleaning services to literally um, put malicious malware viruses on your laptops that you leave behind, um, leave audio and video behind. Um, and they'll even leave that audio video behind how they install it in the room just so they can see your keyboard strokes and use that later. So it's, uh, I go through the myriad of ways that, you know, your hotel can be exploited. And hopefully by having that knowledge, you learn some simple things like just don't leave anything there that you care about. Mm. Wow. That, uh, that, that's pretty eye opening. Um, you, yeah, I'm so curious. Uh, you talk about, so, you know, at the end of that chapter, I mean, you kind of go through some really, really cool things like escape and, and evasion vehicle prep. Um, are there things that you carry in your vehicle or that you would recommend people carry in their vehicle for, you know, sort of like everyday survival? Oh yeah. I think, um, you look at it as, 
look at it as, hey, life support, right? We know that uh, basic survival, you can go three days without water. You can go 30 days without food. Um, so if your worst case scenario is, hey, you know, have, have at least some energy bars and maybe a case of water in the vehicle, um, it doesn't have to be in uh, arm's reach. It can be in the trunk. Um, but the things that you do want in arm's reach would be maybe an extra, you know, um, an extra battery or at least a charging capability for your phone. Um, you got to imagine yourself turned upside down in a vehicle. Um, even taking and taping uh, a razor blade to your seatbelt to the shoulder harness so that if you're upside down, all your body weight is on the seatbelt. Therefore, you can't unlatch it. You have to cut yourself out. And if you're in a time crunch um, and the vehicle is on fire or you smell gas, you want to be able to get out of there quickly. Um, so doing something as simple as taping that razor blade right where you can get to it is a great idea. That, yeah, you know what? I never thought of that. That's pretty. That's <laughs> it's like all of these situations that, as a kid, I remember like playing out in my head, and then you're like, "Yeah, this is this is some real life stuff." Um, okay, yeah, because it's not to drive paranoia by any means. It's no, just, no, no. Hey, not be prepared, you know, for yeah. uh, that case scenario. It doesn't take much effort. Yeah. So, what about things like um, compasses? I know that in the book you talked about um, building your own compass. Um, I've seen some very simple ways of, of you know, make a concealed compass. Like I've, I've seen some very simple ways of, of building those. Um, what do you recommend in terms of just a very simple compass for people uh, if they need to create one and they don't have one? Yeah, the one I put in the book is really all about concealment and, so, and, and it never being found. And really what it is is just two... Um, two rod magnets. You can buy these things from arts and craft stores. They're super small. They, you know, um, when they clamp together, when they, when you clamp them together, you put a piece of string in between and and let it clamp on the string and then hold it. And as it dangles, it'll point North South. Hmm. Um, and so it's a very simple form, but it's the little rod earth magnets that you can buy online or, um, you know, at craft stores. But, uh, you know, then they have for pennies, you can buy this real micro compasses that are already built and they do, uh, they do a great job and you can put them everywhere. But I mean, at the end of the day, GPSs and, you know, other forms of technology are the way to go. You know, I mean, I would say compasses these days is, should be your last resort when it used to be your first. Um, so if you can have a, a GPS and carry extra batteries, um, and then maybe have a compass and a map somewhere. That's great. But, you know, leverage technology when you can, because it's far more accurate. Awesome. Yeah, that's a, that's a really valid point. Um, and then at the end of this chapter, you have some really cool weapons, um, turn a pen into a weapon, fishing weight into improvised uh, sap, and then you've got flexible chain weapon. And my favorite, my all-time favorite, because this is kind of cool, uh, the newspaper nail bat. Uh, t- tell me about the newspaper nail bat. Um, well, I'm trying to bring paper back, right? Now. <laughs> uh, everyone's doing everything digitally these days. And uh, it's not to say that your iPad or your laptop can't just, you know, you can beat the shit out of somebody with it. But uh, newspapers are great. One, you, do, you can find them worldwide. Um, and if you get, you know, the full, you open it up completely, open up those sheets all the way and make it about 10 sheets thick and then roll it doesn't matter lengthwise, widthwise, because most newspapers are really a square for the most part. 
and you roll it up and then you fold it in half. It is literally just as hard as any pipe out there, or at least a wooden bat. But if you want to take it one step further, you drive a nail into just at the top where the fold is. So where the fold is, you have a nail. And, uh, of course, if you hit somebody with that, it's probably going to stick in their temple and you just leave it behind in their head. But, um, it's, uh, it's, these things were, um, really developed, um, by all your soccer fanatics overseas. Uh, most of those stadiums have great controls when it comes to knives and guns because the fans get, get out of hand typically at every game. So the, the fans have become smart and they'll just come with a newspaper knowing that they can use that as an improvised weapon later. And they, uh, they've mastered how to literally take newspaper and turn it into a, a, a very hard bat. Um, and if you get it wet, it's even more lethal. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's pretty cool. That's insane. <laughs> I would, I would never, I'm, I'm, I'll never look at a newspaper the same again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, oh you man, it's there if you need it. Yeah, and then uh, you talk about deploy a roll of coins. What I'm, I'm curious is that kind of like the put the put the roll of coins in your in your fist to make a make a harder punch, or what's that all about? Yeah, that's that's definitely one of them. So there, there's a lot of ways. One, um, a roll of coins. Um, if you carry a weapon, a roll of, and it's a cold day, um, one of the hard things to do is actually get to that weapon and draw it in a safe, effective manner, right? So, um, but one of the things that can help is having a roll of coins in the pocket of the jacket on your gun side so that when you whip that jacket back, it acts as a weight. It keeps the jacket behind you long enough so that you can actually draw that weapon. Um, so that's, that's one. Number two is, yeah, you can put a roll of, roll of uh, you know, nickels or quarters or whatever you have in your fist, and it's going to increase the density of your fist. Obviously, adds a little bit of weight and makes your strike um, uh, far more devastating. Um, the other thing you can do is take it one step for, further and drive some nails through the roll of coins and then let those nails stick between your between your fingers as you grip it. And now you just added just a little bit more pain to your punch. <laughs> just <a little> bit. <laughs> <laughs> And then the last thing that's great is you can throw it, you can throw a roll of quarters into uh, a sock and, uh, you know, create some serious velocity and really knock somebody out with it. Crazy. Um, uh, I'm on, on that note, I'm kind of curious, did you ever, and you don't have, to, if you don't want, you don't have to share this with us, but was there, was there any initiation phase that you had to go through from like your, from like your peers? Like I remember playing hockey back in the day and when I joined, uh, you know, junior a, there was, there was a bunch of, uh, initiation phases that I had to go through and you know, just like crazy, hilarious and ridiculous shit. And some of them I won't talk about, but some of them <laughs> just, just for good measure, but some, you know, some, some of the endurance stuff that, um, that we had to go through in terms of initiation was pretty crazy. So I'm curious, um, just to kind of backtrack a little bit about, you know, did you have any initiation, uh, routines within your division of the SEALs? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I think hazing became a heart, an art in our world. Um, we really took a lot of pride, a lot of thought, a lot of creativity. Um, you know, I think it's completely gone at this point because eventually, you know, enough bad things happen. You know, it, people start actually enforcing rules. But, you know, when I was a SEAL, um, we, uh, 
gosh, I mean, Tabasco being poured down your urethra, (laughs) that that's a nice burning sensation, you know, and it it doesn't go away quickly. Oh man. You know, we, uh, which these days I think is called like sexual assault, but wait, whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And then, uh, you know, there's always, when you got your trident, um, and this is something that I think should just stay no matter what, when you got that trident pinned on you, it has three prongs on the back so that it stays on your uniform. And then we have these little clips that go on kind of like earrings on the back of an earring that goes on the back called frogs, but you remove the frogs and you leave the, 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 the points right there near your flesh. And then everybody at the command, you stand up against a brick wall or whatever, and then everybody gets to basically punch your trident. And when it was said and done, the only thing that wasn't bruised um, was where the trident it was, right? Everything around it is black and blue. And then you could actually see a detailed outline of your trident on your chest along with three holes, you know, that were scabbed over. And it was, I would say, the coolest thing we had going. But unfortunately, you get some guys that make it through all the training and stuff and then, uh, you know, go and uh, pass it up to leadership and all of a sudden you're not allowed to do it anymore. But, yeah, we were very creative and probably did some uh, some crazy stuff back in the day. Crazy. Well, I, I, like, I like that. I mean – it, it's intense still, but I think the the tradition and the uh, you know the, again that sort of like brotherhood um, is is there, and I think it's something that a lot of guys really look for, and a lot of a lot of guys really thrive from. So that's pretty that's pretty neat. Um, so back back to the book surveillance. Tell me about surveillance. Like, what are the key things about surveillance that that uh, that we should know? Um, well, you know, it's funny because criminals may not call it surveillance and then when a criminal does it, we call it stalking, but it's good to know the, the natural tendencies that people take in order to follow and track you, um, whether you be walking or driving, um, you know, these days they're, they can leverage technology so they can, uh, set up a, a hide, if you will. Um, leveraging their vehicle, maybe sitting in the back seat with just some clothes on a hanger uh, to block uh, your view from them sitting there and take pictures of you all day long. You know, it's it's criminalistic, but it's what you want to look for. Um, and uh, then there's the actual physical sides of surveillance where, you know, you're actually being stalked or followed. Um, and it's important to know uh, how to identify that, you know, if it's happening to you, especially for females, you know, it's, uh, uh, we know that, you know, usually, uh, you know, men between their white men between their twenties and thirties end up being the nut job stalker rapists, uh, when you look at the, uh, statistics. So, um, you know, you want, uh, I, I definitely want women to have that takeaway that, you know, Hey, you know, you need to watch your back and there's, there's different skills and different things you can do to determine whether or not you're being followed. Very cool. So, yeah, yeah. And th- those are those are huge parts. Um, night vision. Tell me, tell me about night vision. Have you ever had to? Did you get? Did you get to use night vision? And is there anything that we need to know on the off chance that we get to use night vision uh, as listeners? Yeah, night vision is pretty cool. I mean, uh, yeah, we we that was that gives you the edge against uh, your adversary without a doubt. You're talking lights completely out and you don't have it, you're at a huge disadvantage. Um, so, you know, uh, it's come a long ways when I 
when we first started playing with it, it was really just leveraging um, Starlight and uh, really was only effective outside. Um, and now today, you know, night vision has, uh, you know, every capability you can think of, infrared, thermal, all built into one system. And you can overlay all of those images together to create a full picture of the environment that you're looking at. It's, uh, it's out of, it's, it's completely out of control. And the aviation community used to actually drive the train on development for night vision. Uh, that has switched to, you know, special operations now taking the lead, um, just through, you know, just post nine 11 and leveraging it as a, uh, a true weapon and a true advantage over, over the bad guys. Yeah, very cool. Um, in the in the latter parts of the book, you talk about, you know, things like access and collection. And this is more sort of like infiltration, right? So how to pick a lock and and that kind of stuff. What are what are some of the keys? Like, how do you pick a lock simply? Like, I know that there's the bobby pin method and, and whatnot. But um, for you, like, what are some of the things that you talk about in the book in terms of um, accessing a place that you need to get into? So I'm sure in real life situations, some some of our listeners are like, "Yeah, I forgot my you know keys somewhere, and I need to get back into my home." What what should they do? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, you definitely you know these skills are all for good, not evil for yeah. those listening out there. But um, I'm sure somebody will use them for evil. But you know, okay, sorry. The uh, understanding locks is probably the the main takeaway. If you understand how it works, then it makes it a lot easier to uh, defeat it. So a way a five pin tumbler lock, which is your most common lock around the world now, invented by a guy named Yale. Um, Yale locks is where it all began. And then you've got Quickset and Schlage and all these other companies that have taken that design and made it a little bit, a little bit better, mass, mass manufactured it. And now that's what you find on apartments and homes all over the place. So, the five pin tumbler literally is, uh, it's got pins inside that fall down into the keyway. Your key, when you put it in, lifts all of the pins to what's called a shear line. And that shear line means all the pin tops are now even, which allows the cylinder to turn. If you stick a key in there that doesn't reflect the, 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 the key cuts don't reflect the pin lengths properly, well, then those pins aren't going to ever get to shear line, and then the cylinder is never going to turn. So the goal with picking a lock, um, one, is tension, and two, um, uh, feeling those pins and, and lifting them to the to shear line. Um, it's very difficult to kind of articulate it probably, you know, like this. It's much easier to just actually show it, but you're going to... You have to have two tools. You know, in the movies, you'll see a guy just stick something in and then turn and you're in. That's completely false. You have to have something putting tension on the cylinder. The cylinder is that actual the part of the, the, the lock that turns. You have to have something putting tension on it because that's what binds the pins inside. And then you use a pick to then lift those. And if you're binding the pins against the side of the lock, and then when you go to lift them, it'll be it'll be difficult to lift them, but then they'll pop. And it, when you get that popping feeling, that's when you possibly just put the first pin at shear line. Then you move to the second one, and you lift it, lift it, lift it, and it pops. And then you do that to all five, and the tension will then release, and the cylinder will turn. 
Wow. And uh, that's really, I mean, as about as basic as I can put it without actually showing you how to do it. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's fair. It's, it's a little bit more challenging over over audio to describe how to pick a lock, but I, I think you just did a, a eloquent job at that. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> I feel like I have a good understanding of it. Well, listen, Claire, I mean, we could we could go through the book. I mean, there's, there's just a wealth of information um, in this book. Uh, you know, you go on to talk about collection in terms of collecting data and things that are that are important and sanitation. And I mean, there's there's so many pieces to this book that are fantastic. But I'm I'm kind of curious, what's life after the Navy SEAL has been like as a man? Like you've come home, you have you have a you're married and you have a daughter now. And how old's your daughter? Yeah, I have an 11 year old yeah. um, life after. I tell you, I've only been out. I've been retired for a year now. The first several months was a little, you know, you don't realize it. It's it's, it's a, definitely a transition that uh, you can't ever prepare for because you're literally going from what we call a hero to zero uh, overnight, right? You're going, doing all these great things around the world for the greater good of humanity. And then all of a sudden, yeah, you get your little blue ID card that says you're retired. And uh, yes, yeah, see you later. And, uh, and that's it. So then you have to... Um, you know, supplement your lifestyle to a certain degree to uh, hopefully fill in the gaps that were just created. So for me, it was business. You know, uh, I've got a business that uh, does crisis management for Fortune 500s. Writing this book was great because it kind of let out, you know, some of my creative side. Um, you know, but in the end, you just have to kind of keep yourself busy and uh, fake it till you make it, you know. So three, four months, I was like, oh, this sucks. And then, uh, Six month mark, I realized, well, I'm a little better today than I was, you know, a month or two ago. And now one year, yeah, I'm way better than what I was, you know, at the six month marker. So you just have to uh, put your head down and, you know, go for it. And, uh, uh, and at the end of the day, you know, it's, uh, it, I get to hang out with my uh, little girl, you know, uh, as much as I could because I missed a big chunk of the first part of her life. So, and that's really the big benefit. Yeah, it's. I mean, a lot of athletes talk about that transition as well. Where yeah, and a lot of people in the army and whatnot, where they they come out of that, and it's just kind of like, okay, what do I do? So, is the biggest is the hardest challenge just sort of like the the lack of direction because you you have such an intense focus and drive towards something, and then you kind of shift out of that to have just sort of empty space. Um, so, is is that the biggest challenge, or what's, or is it just kind of like the internalized? Um, you know, mental, mental part of it. That's the hardest part. You know, it's a combination of things. Um, you know, I've had a lot of good friends die. So and I, and you don't realize how much you actually shell, you shell all that emotion. You, put, you just drive on and, you know, keep, uh, keep fighting. Um, and I really didn't, uh, I really didn't take the time to, probably more and all that stuff. And so the day I got out the plane ride from Virginia beach back to Texas, it was, you know, the worst. I mean, it all, and for months, it just, all of a sudden it, I kind of woke up like, holy crap, you know, all this loss. So that's one aspect. Uh, another aspect is you really are, you know, you feel like you're part of the, you know, that bigger, uh, of something bigger than you and everything you do is for something you know, greater and bigger, you know, and it's selfless and, 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 and at the same time, enjoyable and exciting. I mean, heck, you know, there's, there's no job out there that, that beats it. So you have all that. Um, and then all of a sudden it's gone. Um, and then of course there's, 
just the camaraderie, you know, you're hanging out with like-minded people and we are without a doubt, like-minded, sick, twisted, deranged, functional sociopaths. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't surround, I don't have that anymore. I'm like, Oh, I sit in my office and I work and you know, I don't have, you know, sick, twisted sexual conversations with the buddy next to me or whatever else is on in the office. You know, it's, uh, it's definitely a man's world and now eh, and you're not in it anymore. So I tell you, it's multi-pronged and, uh, the list goes on, but, uh, you know, I think for any guy that, you know, has somewhat a head on his shoulders and doesn't get too swept away with, you know, the thoughts of, you know, the PTSD and all these things out there that affect a lot of guys, you just have to, uh, you know, everybody deals with it in their own way. For me, it was just, okay, occupy myself with other things and, try and uh, do great things uh, in a different way. You know, that's yeah. really it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I mean, I can uh, I can say that, um, you know, I think that you're doing great things and I really appreciate the work that you've put out. And, um, you know, it's it's refreshing. And I think your your honesty is also refreshing because I know that, um, you know, those those things are it's, it's heavy. You know, it's a heavy burden to come to come back to you. And and that reality, um, you know, when it hits in and, and whatnot, that's that's a lot to to manage. So, um, you know, even even up here in Canada, we uh, we greatly appreciate the work that you guys do, and um, it's been an absolute honor and pleasure to have you on here and talk about this stuff. Um, so, thank you so so much. I just just as we wrap up, just two more questions. Um, we always ask everybody, what is the legacy that you want to leave in the world? So, I'm I'm curious as to what you want your legacy to be. Jeez. Yeah, just a just a simple question first thing in the morning, no big deal. <laughs> You're like, I was good with all the with all the other stuff, you know, the the paper bat, but legacy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I guess everyone wants to leave some kind of mark, but I I really these days I uh, I want the legacy to reflect, you know. Jeez, I don't know. I kind of always thought of that in terms of, you know, my daughter, right? Dead and gone. What do you want your daughter to kind of think of you? And I guess, hey, you know, uh, someone who, uh, you know, has that, you know, no quit mentality that uh, just takes things to the limit and uh, will uh, find success no matter what, you know, and and that's what I would want my, that's that's exactly how I want my daughter to be, you know, and and that, uh, you know, going back to, to how we started, you know, life's a competition and, you know, you should always strive to win and don't even think about losing because it just doesn't exist, you know, and that's really, uh, I guess that's the best way I can put it. I don't know. That's nope. probably a horrible answer. <laughs> no, man, that, that's, fan, that's fantastic. That's, fan, yeah. that's fantastic. Um, where, what, what's coming up for you? Like what's next and where can people find you? Oh, uh, well, you know, I'm working on book two, so 100 Deli Skills, uh, an, another version. You know, it's turning out far better than the first, which is awesome. It's very difficult to beat, you know, a, a first-time book or a first-time movie. Um, and then my business has got, you know, a lot more clientele and all that coming through, so that keeps me busy as well these days. But you can find me at uh, 100DeliSkills.com. That's 100DeliSkills.com. All the social media little links are there, um, and we have a newsletter now that every Friday you kind of get my thoughts on things, whether it's current events, uh, cool apps, cool security stuff, uh, even some videos on uh, that take the take skills out of the book and bring them to life. So 
people can sign up for the newsletter. They can opt out anytime. I don't spam. I don't believe in spamming the shit out of you. You just get something every Friday and you can choose to read it or delete it. I don't care. But uh, there you go. HunterDelliSkills.com. Awesome. Well, thanks very much, uh, Clint Emerson uh, from Hunter Daily Skills. Thanks very much. And, and listeners, go check it out. Go check out his website. It's fantastic. Check out the book. Download it. Uh, and if you want to hear more podcasts, go to mantalks.com uh, for more podcast blog posts and some of the videos from the speakers that we have at our live events. Uh, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode. And please, please leave us a rating uh, on iTunes. It helps us to bump up. We are I think top 10 right now in society and culture right up there with uh, Ted and the unmistakable creative. So please give us the shout out and um, just a really quick shout out. Thank you so much to uh, Steve Parr and Di Manuel for leaving us a shout out and a rating. So thank you so much. Um, and thanks so much for listening today on the man talks podcast. Catch us next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring man. <laughs> <laughs>